0: But I wanted to experiment with a different kind of narrative, kind of make a mosaic, I guess, that would build into a larger narrative. And I didn't really know what to do with it as I was getting close to finishing it. And then this Vela announcement came out, I thought, like, it was just it seemed so weirdly timed. That was almost like a perfect format for what I'd been doing.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Todd Bishop, and for the past few weeks, I've been looking into Kindle Vela, Amazon's new episodic story platform for mobile devices, as a reflection of broader changes in how people publish, buy, and read stories. You can read my story about Kindle Vela on GeekWire, and on this episode of the GeekWire podcast, I'm sharing highlights from my conversation with one Kindle Vela author. Fred Moody is a retired journalist in the Seattle area and the former managing editor of Seattle Weekly. His new Kindle Vella series is called Barfly on the Wall, a meteoric misadventure into Seattle bartending. Barfly on the Wall explains how Fred Moody's experience as a first-time bartender opened his eyes to the changing city and the world around him. It also tells the -the behind-the-scenes story of how he ended up on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown in Seattle, which was one of Bourdain's final TV shows. My colleague John Cook and I also happened to appear separately on that show, and as you'll hear, Fred Moody and I were able to compare notes on our experiences with Bourdain and share some observations that were common between us that are pretty chilling in hindsight. As we discuss, Fred Moody covered Amazon in its early days, and he worked for a tech startup that went out of business in the dot-com bust. That experience was the backdrop for his 2004 book called Seattle and the Demons of Ambition, a love story. We'll pick up our conversation there with Fred Moody describing what motivated him to write that earlier book.
0: That was what came out of my going down in the dot-com crash and kind of looking back over my personal history and the history of Seattle and my writing history in Seattle and just trying to figure out kind of how we all washed up in this place. And this is right after the um, incredible riots that took over Seattle during the um, World Trade Organization. Yeah. That was really a eye-opener for me, how, how this place that I always thought of as a kind of a, a place you escape to to get away from the rat race, basically, had turned into this massive establishment symbol of all this corporate power, and I saw these youngsters just essentially screaming in my face when I was walking around downtown during those riots, and it just occurred to me that for all the time I'd spent thinking and writing about Seattle, I really hadn't noticed what had happened, that it had turned into a corporate power center between, you know, Nordstrom, Starbucks, um, AT&T, which Started out as Microsoft Cellular, uh, Microsoft, and since then it's, it's kind of metastasized even more than that. It was kind of a shock then, but in retrospect, now that Seattle that I thought was such a massive big deal seems kind of quaint
1: by comparison. <laughs> Did I read correctly that you interviewed Jeff Bezos early on in the company's history?
0: Yeah, it was really... They had barely gotten started. They had this little lock-up down in Soto right across from what then was the Sears headquarters. And it was just Bezos and three other guys. And then down in the basement was this little shipping department. I mean, the floors down there were dirt and the shelves were all homemade and these trucks would come in daily. With It was then it was just exclusively books. He was just talking about kind of why he was located in seattle and what his plans were to be the world's biggest bookstore and all that but there was no sense that they were headed where they were headed at least not to my benighted eyes but um you could tell that he was really on to something but it, nobody could have imagined but that something was i thought he was a really cool guy he was really unpretentious and very generous with his time and he said he was located in seattle because of the software talent here and because it was just one day's flight away from these various kind of distribution centers so it was was sort of a weirdly simple but ingenious idea and i remember um, going back after interviewing him and i had written one book about the seattle seahawks that was long out of print i just searched on that title and found that you could get it there so i called him up and said what's the deal with this and he actually called me back a day later and said there were three copies in the baker and taylor warehouse somewhere in nevada (laughs) so wow um, wow he was just a really unpretentious guy
1: yeah so you ended up retiring as a journalist and through, I would imagine, a, a number of years, you ended up being presented with a unique opportunity to become a bartender. You write about this in your Kindle Vela series, Barfly on the Wall, but can you tell us the, the basic story of how you came to be a bartender?
0: Well, my son-in-law, he's in his late 30s now, but he started working in restaurants when he was 14 and really worked his way up from being a dishwasher in Bellingham to uh, managing some of the biggest operations in Seattle, and he and my daughter have always wanted had always wanted to own their own 24-hour restaurant because they had met at the Horseshoe Cafe in Bellingham, which is this 24-hour dive of legendary proportions. So they wanted to kind of build something like that in Seattle, and they they got this opportunity to buy this Chinese restaurant in Greenwood and worked like crazy to. Reimagine it as a 24-hour diner, and it had this bar room that they called the Shanghai Room. And he just asked me one day to be his daytime bartender. I can still hear him saying, you'd be an awesome daytime bartender. (laughs) I couldn't even imagine what he was thinking, but I was pretty bored with retirement. And I thought it'd be fun. It turned out to be, of course, vastly more interesting than I expected. But it was a real learning experience, not only the bartending trade, but the listening and conversing trade. And eventually the note-taking trade, which at least that part was familiar to
1: me. You write that it opened your eyes to uh, another side of Seattle that you hadn't really seen before. And in part, you recognized the impact of the baby boomer generation, your generation, on those that came after you. Can you explain what you meant and and how you saw that from behind the bar?
0: I think part of it was my career was just uh, basically covering wealthy and successful people more or less and I guess I kind of had blinders on and so this bartending thing kind of was was not unlike the WTO riot experience in which I just saw everything from a completely different perspective and I was working with kids most of them in their 20s some in their early 30s who really had it tough growing up and just did not have anywhere near the opportunities that people in my generation had and I started to see how the political power and the economic power that we had and that we really, I think, misused and used selfishly uh, was just really put these people at a disadvantage. They weren't complaining people by any stretch of the imagination, but I could see that their their lives were just really, really much harder than mine than people in my generations were. And they just worked really hard and really uncomplainingly. There's a kind of fatalism, I think, to a lot of them. They didn't really have the outsized ambitions or the belief that you could kind of be anything you want to be that we grew up having. I found myself more and more um, really drawn to that generation and I think much more understanding of how much damage we had done to the world for them.
1: We're talking with Fred Moody. He is a longtime journalist and author and the author of Barfly on the Wall, a meteoric misadventure into Seattle bartending, which is a series on Kindle Vella, Amazon's platform for episodic stories. And I want to talk about that experience of writing for that platform. When we come back, you're listening to GeekWire. I wanted a career in
0: IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included.
1: Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. We're talking with author and journalist Fred Moody. Fred, as we've been saying, your series on Kindle Vella is called Barfly on the Wall. You have experience writing books in your past. How did you come to end up writing a series on this new platform from Amazon?
0: It was a little bit of a weird coincidence because I started writing this um, before Villa existed or before I even knew it was coming or anything, but I wanted to experiment with a different kind of narrative where I'm telling these short little pieces, sometimes anecdotes, sometimes conversations, but little pieces from people's lives and just kind of jumping from one to the other and then going back and in some ways kind of like soap operas used to be, following the trajectory of the business that was taking form, just the restaurant and the bar and then following the lives of some of the people I worked with and the, some of my customers in the bar and trying to kind of make a mosaic, I guess, that would build into a larger narrative. And I didn't really know what to do with it as I was getting close to finishing it. And then this Vela announcement came out. I thought, well, it was just it seemed so weirdly timed. That was almost like a perfect format for what I'd been doing. I could just take these bite-sized little things and make these episodes... And I was really taken with the idea that it would be so phone-friendly because the audience I was thinking about for this book were people that read exclusively on their phones, which I'd noticed in my bartending was the case with almost everybody under 40 years old. And I kind of wanted to reach the Gen Z millennial audience, which I don't really see as a book-reading audience so much as a phone-reading audience. And the people that... I saw in the bar all the time. Those were kind of the people I envisioned as readers when I was working on this. So I thought this is kind of an ideal format. And I also like the idea that people just kind of pay as you go. Instead of buying a whole book unread, you can start reading it for free. And then if you want to keep reading it, then you can start paying. It doesn't cost very much. And basically the writer has to kind of really earn the money with his writing because you're not selling based on someone else's review or all these reasons people buy books without knowing really what's in them. So I just kind of thought that was sort of fun. And then I like the ability to um, fix things after they're published. I like the idea that you can keep adding to the story as you, anytime you want. Um, I've had a couple people who I worked with in the bar point out that I made a couple mistakes about their biographies or something so I can go in and fix it, and it, within a couple hours, it's already back up in its corrected form. So I really like all of that aspect of it.
1: That's really interesting. And it does speak to the generational difference in media consumption. I'm sitting here thinking of myself, even just in an airport or something, there's no better way to get some weird looks than to sit there reading a book in a bar.
0: Yeah, the three years I was there, I had one customer that read books in the bar, and I only saw one person come in with a folded newspaper, and that guy turned out to be a reporter from The Times.
1: <laughs> oh, right. You tell the story. Is that the one who basically did the little profile of the of the bar and the, the restaurant?
0: Yeah, that was the first public notice. And then everybody else just read their phones.
1: It's interesting. I must be on the older side of that generational divide because one of the things that I've struggled with with Kindle Vela, even just over the weekend reading your series – I was on my phone and notifications kept coming in. And I finally went, ah, geez. And I went and, you know, put myself into do not disturb mode. You know, I love the separation that good old fashioned print books provide from the world that invades my world otherwise. And so I, I I get the generational difference and I understand that it's, and I think it's neat that you're targeting or thinking about reaching that younger audience. And frankly, it's a sign that you learned to Lesson and got an insight from the experience you had. I I just struggle with this notion that print books are not the center of the world in terms of reading anymore. How, How do you feel about it?
0: I've always loved print books, but I got kind of a, I guess, an early start to reading stuff on screen. When the first Kindle came out, I remember buying it almost the day that it was available. Because at that time, I was doing a lot of traveling, and you could carry, you know, 100 books with you that weighed six ounces or whatever that thing was. So it was sort of a matter of convenience. And now I've gotten so used to that. uh, I I haven't, I think, in the last five years, I've only read maybe two books on paper. Uh, I've just gotten kind of phone addicted. It's probably not all that healthy, but the convenience is just astounding
1: to me and the books are delivered in an instant I, I get it i totally get it now were you writing this book as a, a money-making venture or was it more a labor of love i ask in part because i want to ask about the economics that you experienced on vela compared to your traditional publish, publishing experience but i wonder if you could sort of lay that out for us
0: i didn't really think about publishing I, I really i i think the reason i started working on it is because i got locked up in the pandemic i was just going crazy with I guess, boredom, and um i just got my notes out and started going through them and started working on it and i wasn't really thinking about a financial payoff the the way the economics were i'm not sure it would really work for somebody who's trying to make a living writing it's hard for me to tell at this early stage but um the thing about print publishing is that you can get an agent, you get a deal, you get an advance, and that advance will pay some bills for a while. Um, But then you generally, you don't really expect to get anything beyond that. And the frustrating thing about publishing for print is that it takes almost two years after you've finished your writing to see the thing in print. And it's just, by then, so much of the way information gets around, in this modern age, so much of what would be in your book is kind of dead material in a way, or obsolete almost. So those factors, rather than financial ones, I think were what was driving me. The other kind of funny thing about the Vela is that they have this little author dashboard. So anytime anybody anywhere reads one of your episodes, you know, if you, if you, if you look it up, but it discounts that
1: fast. All right. So success in this genre in general requires a good narrative arc and suspense. And your book, Fred, had a really great plot, not only in terms of the questions about the bar, but also a certain celebrity visitor that you had. And so I'm going to create my own teaser here. We're going to talk about that after this break. You're listening to GeekWire. Welcome back. I'm talking with Fred Moody. He is a retired journalist, longtime author, former bartender, and the author of Barfly on the Wall, a meteoric misadventure into Seattle bartending, which you can find on Amazon's Kindle Vela episodic reading platform. So, Fred, you and I actually had a somewhat parallel experience with the same visit to Seattle by none other than the late Anthony Bourdain. And you write about this in the book. Can you tell us the story of your experience with Anthony Bourdain?
0: Yeah, it was really... I mean, this the restaurant had only been in business for two years when um, we were contacted through the diner's Facebook page from Bourdain's producer. He just asked... He's, he wanted to get in touch with me to talk about being on a show called Parts Unknown. <laughs> he didn't mention Bourdain's name or anything. So I was, So I just I thought it was interesting of them to be so kind of unpretentious about it. I figured that had to be what it was, but it didn't make any sense that they would be contacting. At least it didn't make any sense to me. This completely unknown restaurant that was hardly even known in the known of its own neighborhood. But anyway, when I called the guy, um, he was really excited that I called him back, and he asked me if I was familiar with the show, and I assured him I was. And Then he started talking about Tony, which was another thing that threw me. But uh, they wanted to come out in advance, and come to the bar and just kind of talk about what they wanted to do and they showed up right on time a couple months later three people and they ordered a bunch of food and beer and tequila and started talking about seattle and kind of telling us what they wanted to do and he kept saying you know we never know where tony's going to take things so just kind of follow along and hope for the best but i was really impressed with how energetically they researched almost anything you told them um as they came out here and then they told me to go to this Taylor uh shellfish restaurant Pioneer Square and have this lunch and uh that was another thing that was kind of a last minute thing that I wasn't expecting. And I don't know if that was your experience as well.
1: Not as much. I can tell my part of the story here in a second, but what struck me from reading your book was just how much suspense was happening in your life and the life of your daughter and your son-in-law who owned the bar and restaurant because a visit by Anthony Bourdain is life-changing for an establishment such as that and to some extent you were really left to the whims not only of the producers but of Bourdain in the moment and the question of whether they would film in the bar was really uncertain until the very end when they showed up.
0: Yeah I was just panic stricken over I mean first I went from disbelieving that this was even happening, thinking this this is just a world changer for the bar and I that's I just got fixated on the fact they just have to film in this room <laughs> and mention the name of the bar. And that's I just was the way they kept changing their mind about everything, I really did think that this could fall through at any minute. And even after they filmed there was no I mean I knew by then that they had shut, by my reckoning, a minimum of about a about a hundred hours of film. Hmm. Uh, and just from what they told me that who they talked to and where they 'd been and and this is for forty minutes of television, so even after they filmed, there was a three month kind of waiting to see if we were even going to make that cut and it wasn't until they sent me email saying, tell me when it was going to air, and they told me to be sure and tell my son-in-law when it was going to be on. That's when we knew that we were going to be in the show. And for the first time in six months, we could all breathe kind of a sigh of relief and then start trying to plan for kind of the impact that that would have.
1: Yeah. The bar and the restaurant became a place that people would come because Bourdain ate there. And what was the name of the sandwich?
0: The crabby bacon melt. Bacon melt.
1: How could I forget that?
0: The producer was just crazy about that thing. He ate two of them in one sitting the first time he showed up. And they did the same thing when they came back to film. I still remember him saying exactly as I remembered.
1: Yes, exactly. And But they were very intent on knowing whether it was fresh caught Dungeness crab. Yeah. It had to be genuine.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was really a big deal for them. Fortunately, it was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But you write about going to Taylor Shellfish. Speaking of the power of books, you talked with some of the folks from the kitchen there who basically had been pushed into the restaurant industry or inspired to go into restaurants because of Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential.
0: Yeah, in fact, the manager there was... um, almost teary-eyed when he was talking to me about it, what an impact that it had, had had. And then I noticed after we filmed there, when Bourdain got up to leave, there was a line of virtually the entire kitchen staff waiting there, each of them with a copy of Kitchen Confidential for him to sign. And you could see what a just an incredible inspiration he is throughout that industry. It was the same thing at our restaurant. I mean, everybody was just over the moon, with the fact that he was actually going to be there. I mean, But for all of my saying that nobody reads books in that generation anymore, they've all read that
1: one. I should mention here before people wonder what the heck is going on in terms of uh, my own involvement, my colleague, John Cook, and I had a similar experience where we were contacted out of the blue by the team from 0.0 Productions, if I remember correctly.
0: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it was the same two folks. Who it was uh, was it Nick
0: Nick Nick Bridgen and Helen Cho.
1: Yeah, just a fantastic crew. And in fact, later after Anthony Bourdain passed away, they were the first people that I thought of. Just like I know you wrote the same thing. Yeah, Um, the time that we spent with Anthony Bourdain at Revel, which is a Korean fusion restaurant in the Fremont neighborhood where GeekWire is based, that time was fleeting. It, It was obviously very powerful, but we spent much more time with his crew. And we talked John and I with Anthony Bourdain about the evolution of the tech industry. And he with us was very fixated on pot and porn. And in fact, one of the more memorable lines, uh, Anthony Bourdain wanted to talk about VR porn and John looked at right at the camera and said, well, Todd's our expert in VR porn. And they turned it into a really funny moment in the show, which I've taken a while to get over as my CNN debut, but that's a whole other story. It was, it was a fascinating experience. And at the end, they had us sing a couple of lines from a song by Mark Lanigan, who is a singer songwriter uh, from the Seattle region who wrote a song called strange religion. And I know they had you sing a portion of it too. It ended up being more like a lip sync in the final scene of the show. But in hindsight, it's really remarkable to read the lyrics of that. Yeah. Knowing what happened. Can you speak to that?
0: Yeah. Especially I'm trying to remember the lines yeah. um, this life I'm leading might just be the end of me. That's the, yeah. the line, the, verse that sticks out, but it's a very, very, very mournful song and it's I don't I I am sure most people have seen this episode if they're from Seattle anyway, but Mordain is sitting in the bar brooding over a beer while this song is playing and yeah, those those lines. If you if you go back, that scene is actually that scene alone is on YouTube and uh to look at it in the wake of his suicide is is pretty chilling.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to bring this full circle, Fred, you've covered this town, you've lived in this town and in this region for decades, we had this shared experience with Anthony Bourdain, you've had this eye-opening second career (laughs) at the bar, which is no longer in the family and you're not working there anymore, but you've just sort of had this 360 experience of Seattle and clearly the evolution and the, the course that everything took with Bourdain was in the end tragic, but as you look at Seattle and its evolution, and in some ways Bourdain was a symbol of, you know, what we've lost, what gives you hope? Like what can you look to? I know you're taking care of your grandkids right now. You write about, uh, w- what gives you hope as you look to the future of this city and the region? And gosh, I, I don't mean to overreach, but like humanity, like what makes you hopeful, if anything?
0: I think, um, I don't know if this is a, Seattle problems specifically, but I always have this tendency to kind of think that everything in Seattle is about Seattle But even, you know, it's obviously a, a national picture when you get into things like the pandemic and climate change and things like that But we've been through so many busts in this town and we always seem to come back in some unexpectedly vibrant way um, this is the first time with what's going on now, the pandemic, where I've really felt kind of jarred in a way that I haven't before. But now I see people tentatively starting to reopen. I I, I do think that we learn from these uh, downturns. This one is a, a legitimate crash, but I feel like there's something here that helps us find a way to find an improved version of ourselves in the aftermath of these things.
1: Well, Fred, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Fred Moody is the author of Barfly on the Wall, a meteoric misadventure into Seattle bartending, which you can find on Amazon's Kindle Vela platform. Look for a link to the series in the show notes on this episode where you can also find a link to my larger story on Kindle Vela and the growing market for episodic story platforms. We will be back this weekend with our regular weekly news roundup, looking this week at Microsoft's Windows 11 and the company's newly unveiled Surface devices. Until then, I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Thanks for listening.